Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Solsure Del Moral. Dr. Del Moral is professor of American studies and black studies and a historian of modern Latin American and the Caribbean uh, at Amherst College. She offers courses on the history of Afro-Latin America, U.S. Afro-Latinx communities, and the comparative Caribbean. She has published on the history of race, childhood, and the U.S. empire in Puerto Rico. Her first book, Negotiating Empire, focused on citizenship building projects in a colonial school system. And her current project, Street Children, Crime and Punishment, is a history of street children and incarcerated youth in Puerto Rico. Dr. Demoral's research is supported by the American Council of Learned Societies. Thank you so much for joining me today, Solsi. Thank you for having me, Michelle. So I wanna just dive right in. So you grew up in Arroyo, Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. moved to Wisconsin at a young age so, mm-hmm. and now you're a professor of American studies <laughs> and black studies at Amherst. And I'm just wondering how did your early life um, experiences shape your professional interests in Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx communities? Sure. So <clears throat> yes, I was born in the town of Arroyo in the Southeastern coast of Puerto Rico, which, um, and we, I lived in the town with my family of Guayama, but it's important for me to say that my family generations back is from the town of Arroyo. And so that's a defining part of my personal experience as a Puerto Rican and as an Afro-Latinx person, because um, as some of your listeners may know, um, Puerto Ricans are very regional. They're very um, community centered around their hometowns. and. My hometown of Arroyo, even though my experience since I moved to the U.S. when I was eight is an experience of an Arroyana ausente or someone from the U.S. who has, who you know, returns to the island but was raised in the U.S. But when I was a child in elementary school in Puerto Rico in those years, what I learned was that my Puerto Rico was Black, right? So Arroyo and Guayama and then the surrounding areas of Jabucoa and other places, that part of the island on the coast is the Black Puerto Rico. So on the one hand, it was important that when I was no longer living there, the, the image of Puerto Rico that I took with me to the U.S. as I was in completely different ethnic racial spaces was that I'm Black and I'm from Puerto Rico and there was no contradiction there for me on the one hand. On the other, um, just because Puerto Rico or my part of Puerto Rico was black, did not mean that I was even at that age really aware of colorism and color differences Mm -hmm. um, in my my house, in my home, in my school, with my friends. So my experience as a black person from Puerto Rico was also in that little hometown and from my return visits, an experience of being painfully aware of how colorism works and how race works within Black communities in Puerto Rico and Latin America. So that um, that mattered to me personally. The other part that matters is that I moved to the U.S. as a young at a young age, mm-hmm. and so I learned to be. And I moved to Milwaukee. My teenage years were in Milwaukee. With Milwaukee at that time was the most one of the most segregated cities in the U.S. 
And so what I learned growing up in my adolescence in the U.S. was how to be Black, how to be Black from the inner city, however. Mm -hmm. um, not, you know, it took me, it wasn't until college when I was able to articulate that I had learned to be Black of a certain class status because of my neighborhood and my background. Mm -hmm. uh, in college, I learned a much broader definition of U.S. Blackness as it relates to class. But uh, those were two relatively distinct worlds. I had a, a Puerto Rican kind of Latinx world that I grew up in, in the U.S., that which just, you know, race functioned in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And outside of the home, I was very much an African-American woman uh, where race and colorism functioned in another way. So how does this personally, that means that I learned at different languages, different contexts in which I had to adjust my understanding and presentation of race and racial formation. Wow, that is yeah. that is pretty profound. Again, I mean, I talk to my students a lot about the how people when they come here from different places, how they have to manage and adjust the frameworks mm -hmm. and lenses, uh, particularly surrounding race, but also as you mm -hmm. point out, surrounding class, and that mm -hmm. you're inhabiting these both of these spaces at the same mm -hmm. time. Um, because of the because of the context in which you're in mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so so I know that you are well I guess I want to I want to back up a little bit and ask so you those pieces are informing your experiences how do you go into in, into college are you thinking I want to study this this is what I'm interested in or does that come a little bit later Right. So when I go to college and I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as an undergraduate, which is a huge, you know, state institution, I thought I was going to study business. Honestly, I thought I was going to go into finance. And but my first year, I took a course that they offer there. I remember Latin American Studies 260, which is a intro introductory and interdisciplinary course on Latin America. And I fell in love, like I was like, oh, you know, there's so much about Latin American culture, history, economics, politics, sociology, that I just loved and could identify with, even though the Puerto Rican part of it was marginal to the scholarship at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I'm going to major in Latin American studies. Like, I don't, I didn't know what that meant in terms of a career. Like my parents didn't know what that meant. Like, can you get a job in that? Mm -hmm. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. And as part of my Latin American studies major in college, we had to, um, you know, I was already, we had to do a second language other than Spanish. And I did Portuguese over the summer one year with a professor who I'm sure is now retired, Professor Albuquerque, Severino Albuquerque. And I fell in love. I was like, whoa, what is this Brazil? What is this Portuguese? Brazilian, uh, the Afro-Brazilian experience language, uh, the whole thing was very was much more familiar to me as a Puerto Rican, I was like, I get this. And so then I decided um, to go study abroad in Brazil for a year. And so that's really what, that's when my career choices became clear. And I think it happens for a lot of undergrads in the US when they go study abroad their junior year. So I went abroad my senior year, I went to Brazil for a year. I lived in Sao Paulo for a semester, six months, and I lived in and studied in Bahia for eight months and became fluent in Portuguese and in Afro-Brazilian studies. And from Brazil, I remember I applied for graduate school. You know, I, it was a long time ago, so it was not as easy internet-wise. But I said, this is two things, was I want to do Latin American studies, number one. And two, I had the luck and opportunity to work with 
uh, an individual named Francisco Scarano, who's now retired and is a, oh, yeah. is a historian of Puerto Rico at Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And he was very supportive of me. And I went to talk to him. You know, I had those, those meetings that undergrads have, like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And he guided me in terms of my graduate school application. So because I had Scarano advising me, and because I had a year in Brazil and I had Portuguese language and I was just overall interested in Black Latin America, I decided I was going to get a PhD in history. I, honestly, I didn't know what that meant, but I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to be just like Scarano. I'm going to get a PhD in history and, and learn all this stuff. And maybe I'll become a professor one day. And so that's, it was at that point that I decided that I was going to go to grad school. And then I started at Columbia with Professor Klein, Herbert Klein, who had, uh, trained many historians of slavery and comparative slavery in Puerto Rico generations before me. And I worked, I did my master's there, and then I returned to Wisconsin to do a PhD in Latin American history because I had been advised with all professional historians that I spoke to, you need to go work with Scarano. And so I went back to Wisconsin and I was lucky. I had the opportunity to, um, we had a great Latin American history program at the time with Florencia Malam and Steve Stern and Francisco oh, yeah. Scarano but I was able to focus uh, my project at the time with Scarano. He was my main advisor. I wanted to do history of Puerto Rico. I wanted to work on race. I wanted to explore all these things that I knew to be true as a black Latin American, as black Puerto Rican, black US Latinx person, but things that I knew to be true, but that I couldn't really put my finger on in the scholarship and, the, and so I just wanted to do research in that field. And that's how, I kind of moved into history and moved into Afro-Latin American history and as a discipline and as a career. Wow. That is a, I did not know any of this. I'm so excited to, to learn all this about you. I know. And I know that you're also, you know, looking at all those different pieces. I know that you're passionate about highlighting the way that uh, Black and Brown people, especially children, experience violence and especially hearing their own perspectives. So if you could tell me a little bit more about why you're drawn to that, those particular areas, especially um, the evolution of your, of your research on education and youth. Yeah. So my first book was on the history of U.S. empire and local Puerto Rican teachers in the school system from 1900 to about 1950. And my intention, my influence um, behind that project all along had been to try to locate writings, letters, anything that I could that represented the voices of students and parents in the school system, right? And how they were negotiating with or how they were uh, engaging and dealing with, you know, at the time in Puerto Rico, what would be called the violence of English language instruction and Americanization. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I went in with that lens was twofold. One, for my prelims at Wisconsin, working under Florencia Mellon, I did a lot of reading on Native American boarding schools in the U.S. And at that time in the 90s, the best work was this wonderful, you know, these scholars had identified and found letters written by children and parents. And those documents told this horroring story of what Americanization is like and how it's experienced by children in the U.S. On the one hand, like that really was foundational to me and moved me and scared me. And I thought, wait a minute, what's going on in Puerto Rico? On the other hand, from a Latin American perspective, uh, there was Mary Kay Vaughn's book on the politics of um, education in Mexico and the way that she looked at state building, um, regional state building projects and contestation among teachers, local communities and the state. Those two things were what guided my 
thinking when I went into Puerto Rico to do my dissertation research where I thought, all right, this is it. I'm going to find this magical material and be able to tell this history. It didn't happen. I didn't find, um, I found the writings of teachers instead, and they were really wonderful and significant and impactful for revising, I think, the scholarship on education in Puerto Rico. So I focused really on teachers in that book, and I missed the voice of students until the very last chapter, the last chapter of that book in the 40s and 50s, which is when the archive, really, the National Ar the, the Puerto Rico General Archive kind of grows and expands and begins to collect documentation from the 20th century. Mm -hmm. The material that I was looking for for the early 20th century, I found for the 40s and 50s. And I was able to include one chapter in that book that looked at scholarship students in the public schools, students who receive scholarships for either transportation, food or clothing to attend public schools and letters that they wrote um, appealing for funds. And those letters finally got me to the voice of children. And it was just so, I don't know, I find it very engaging and honest. Now, because I finally had that information for the 1940s, I continued on that path. I said for my second project, you know, I couldn't give all of the attention that I wanted to children, but I'm gonna do it the second time around. And I didn't know where it was gonna go. Mm -hmm. um, and so I spent those first couple exploratory weeks in the archives that we always do, which is very frightening. Cause you're like, I, I don't, you know, you have to figure out how the whole, for my, that time period where the materials were. And I was able to trace and trace and trace. And okay, so what I found for the forties and fifties for Puerto Rico, which is my second book project, was a ton of archival documentation on this real social fear and moral fear of um, juvenile delinquency in 40s and 50s Puerto Rico. Like that was the big topic around childhood. Mm. And I knew very little about this. And my only, you know, I could put it into conversation with the 1980s and 1990s street children phenomenon in Brazil. And I thought, what's going on here? Let me keep going. And so I came across all of this material um, about, on the one hand, what I call street children in Puerto Rico, which are both homeless children and working class children, black and brown and white, who are poor workers in the cities and streets of Puerto Rico in the 40s and 50s during a process of um, industrialization and rural to urban migration. Now, so it starts there. I found documentation about not parents, not parents, citizens, neighbors writing about, oh my goodness, these children in the streets unattended and violence and fear. And so I followed that documentation and realized that as a result of citizen complaints um, and fear of children in the streets in a way different than before the 1940s, this was a really a class, kind of a middle-class fear of working class and poor children. Mm -hmm. There were all these laws that were passed at the municipal level to kind of cleanse the streets, right? To sanitize the streets, to hold parents accountable for unaccompanied children and to hold, um, to regulate child labor in the afternoons and evenings. Now, the consequence of that legislation was that all of, a lot of the street children were, in, were arrested, right? So they are wow. doing something that is against the law and so they're arrested. But what happens in Puerto Rico is that we don't have detention centers. We have one detention center in the 40s that holds 75 children. But um, we don't have enough detention centers to hold children segregated by age uh, throughout the island. And so children are routinely and had been routinely 
uh, any child who came, you know, who violated the law in some way and had to go to the police station and was not released to parents, they were held in these adult jails. Um, And so what I realized following the documentation, including state investigations into the status of children in adult jails was that this was common. This was a problem. This had been a problem for a long time, had been identified. The children were facing violence, you know, physical violence, Mm -hmm. sexual violence Mm -hmm. at the hands of older peers and adult inmates. And this was a form of state neglect of black and brown children. And so I was pretty outraged about what I found. And I was outraged because there was a ton of documentation. I was like, wait a minute, how come? I, I didn't think I had never read about this for Puerto Rico at that time. But now that I have read more about juvenile delinquency and industrialization is completely logical. It's to be expected. And so the stories that I read in the state investigations, the stories that I read in the letters written by older adolescents to social workers, other parents, or the governor, and the stories that I read written by parents asking social workers for support um, and for their children who had been in state institutions or who were just suffering through poverty were devastating. And I, um, I wanted to highlight that experience. And in the process of highlighting that experience, which is um, really changed my understanding of ch- really of childhood in Puerto Rico and for the poor. Um, I also realized that there were really the options between white poor children in the state institutions or who had been arrested was very different, really, than the options and experiences of what they called um, mulatto or brown children or black children in Puerto Rico. And it was really shocking to see the extent to which black boys and girls who were poor, incarcerated, or in the state institutions in some form or another were really, really disadvantaged. Uh, It's a tragic story. And so I want to tell it because it allows me to say more about childhood experiences, about the violence of poor children, and about the ways that within the category of poor, Black and brown children experience things differently than white poor. Not to say one is better or not, but it is different and it is painful. And I think this is the history very much of black and brown people in Latin America that it's hard to tell and we don't know what how to make sense of it. And so that's what I'm working with now. Wow, I, I commend your strength for going through those kinds of records. I mean, I've only had I've only done that. So to a certain degree with my work on, on slavery, yeah. but um, I, can, I can only imagine just the, the, the depth of outrage yeah. and pain and frustration. Um, as, you, mm-hmm. as you said, it, it's, there's plenty of documentation. So it's mm-hmm. not like people didn't know in the institution mm-hmm. that it was happening. That's right. But yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I look forward to, to that coming out. Uh, in Thank the you. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask them. So thinking about those pieces of, mm-hmm. issues of race and black and brown children and poverty, um, as a scholar and educator, how would you say your work contributes to our understanding of Afro-Latin American um, communities? Well, OK, so I think at the most basic level, what I am doing and what others do, I don't think we're beyond this. So what I'm doing at the popular level, which means with my undergrad students, 
is that I'm still trying to correct for the myth of racial harmony in Latin America and in U.S. Latinx societies, right? So the teaching of uh, Afro-Latin American history or U.S. Afro-Latinx studies in the classroom is about deconstructing the the very real myth of racial harmony that exists, you know, it's different for Puerto Ricans and Cubans and Dominicans and Brazilians and Colombians and Mexicans, but it is still, and in academic circles, yeah, it's been demystified. And, you know, we know that there are well-organized Black political and feminist organizations in these countries, but, you know, the parents and grandparents of the children in our classrooms today, if they're children of immigrants, our children, our parents who were educated in a public or private school system, Latin America and the Caribbean, that still reproduces the myth of racial harmony. And that is extremely damaging to students, to children, to black and brown university students, because they don't have the, it's gaslighting. They don't have the language. Um, I mean, some of them do, but they ha- it's a difficult process by which they come to reject the myth of racial harmony as it relates to their own experiences as black and brown students in the US, number one, um, as black and brown students who are of Latinx descent and how they navigate that category. And as they try to relate to their parents, either their parents or their cousins on the island or their grandparents in the US, they are experiencing race in ways that are very different than their parents and grandparents, but they don't have the language to do so. And when they try the students to say, this is what I'm experiencing, the parents and grandparents or cousins on the island have the language to say, nope, you're wrong. You're misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. You're applying US methods of racial formation to a Latin American experience in our own homes or in our own communities. And so these students, have spent a lifetime trying to say, how do I just say, this is racist, Mm -hmm. fundamentally and foundationally, and you are a racist, and it's wrong, and we have to correct it, and we have to, we're not, you know. So anyway, what am I doing? I think in the teaching of history of Afro-Latin America and history of U.S. Afro-Latinx communities in the U.S., we're we're still at the level where we're deconstructing the myth, the damaging myth of racial harmony, in the students' personal lives and in their ability to conduct research about the Black experience in Latinx communities and Latin America. So that's where I am in the classroom. Mm-hmm. No, I hear, I, I hear the same things, mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. frustrations that the students who are you know, experiencing this kind of awakening of, oh, oh, um, yeah. this is what's <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's that there's a lot of work, and and I th- think definitely your work in the classroom contributes to that. And so hopefully, mm-hmm. students are you know are are like you said, getting finding the tools, getting the language that they need mm-hmm. to um, to not necessarily confront, but to challenge you know mm-hmm. g- gently, p- politely, if that's you know um, or or not with with family members and community members who say, oh, you're thinking too much like the U.S. Mm-hmm. and to be able to say no, this here's x y z how this Mm -hmm. how this actually also fits what's happening on in these countries in latin america and on these islands etc so Mm -hmm. yeah there i mean there it's it's coming but it's you know one student at a time in a lot Mm -hmm. of cases i've been thinking about those elements um in terms of providing the language to deconstruct uh, what people have learned about racial democracy racial harmony 
what do you think are some of the most urgent issues for Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx communities today, especially as they relate to issues of education and the work that you do? Mm -hmm. Well, um, in the U.S., well, I think it's, if we're looking at the, the student body in the U.S. that I'm working with and others in the U.S., like, I think the, for me, the most urgent issue is collaboration and alliance. Mm. So, uh, you know, the history of Latinx communities in the U.S. and their alliances or challenges with forming alliances with African-American communities in the U.S. is, you know, varies according to whether it's in the Northeast, the Southeast, uh, Florida, Texas, the Southwest. You know, we have, our experiences are very regional in this country, but uh, it's been difficult. In the Northeast, it's much more common for people of uh, Black Latinx descent or Black Caribbean descent to be very much embedded and part of what people assume to be uh, African-American experiences in the U.S. Like that's the Northeast U.S., is very heterogeneous in that way. It has always been. But even then, um, the, the alliances that have to be formed with newly arrived Latin American immigrants, whether from Belize or from Colombia or from Honduras, countries that are multiracial and communities that are read as Black in the U.S., right? So Caribbean peoples who identify as Hispanic-speaking Latinos in the U.S., but outside of their home, are read and treated like any other Black person. These Caribbean and Latinx, our communities have got to be really critical, I think, the most urgent thing of how race works. Uh, race and poverty, housing, education, and the carceral state, healthcare. This is, we are impacted by race in the US and we must form alliances with African-American communities in the US who have also been impacted and have a long history of organization. Now, Latinx communities also have a long history of organization, but this, the alliances have not, are not natural, are not automatic. And I think the more um, US Afro-Latinx and Latin American, Lat Afro-Latin American communities realize the need to identify and organize around the larger umbrella of blackness in the Americas, whether it's through the national, you know, Brazilian state or the US national state and how that affects. And so how, as black people in the US, not just Puerto Ricans or Dominicans or Cubans or Curl, as black people in the US, we must work and collaborate um, because we are impacted equally uh, about with, Racism impacts us equally as it does African-Americans. And so we must collaborate, work together and try to improve conditions in our communities as they relate to education, healthcare, the correctional system, et cetera. You can't see me, but I'm nodding my head vigorously in affirmation <laughs> because I, mean, I, 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 too, I also believe in that, that, that those arenas of collaboration, alliance, uh, especially mm -hmm. in this country and certainly across the hemisphere. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think those pieces that you laid out are really certainly very important. Um, we're, we have to, um, unfortunately, wrap up in a moment. I'm going to ask my kind of final question that I always okay. like to ask about, um, in addition to your you know, forthcoming works and articles, what other kinds of resources would you recommend to people who are really interested in learning more about um, Afro-Latin American or, or U.S. Afro-Latinx communities, especially you know, in this realm of, of youth and Yes. And poverty, um, class, all of this, if, mm -hmm. if it's books or films or digital projects, social media, 
you name it, we'll get these up on the website so people can have access to it. Wonderful. So this is um, one of the challenges of being an older person in academia. (laughs) I have what you call digitally and social media challenged. Okay. Okay. Nevertheless, I try my best. My students laugh at me, but I'm working on it. And so I think, um, you know, beyond syllabi and coursework on U.S. Afro-Latinx studies or history of Afro-Latin America that we're all familiar with, um, I think uh, for me, it is through social media in particular that kind of um, bottoms up Black groups in Latin American and U.S. societies or communities are organizing. So that means that the filter of policing scholarship or uh, the national framework, which tries to silence and or you know streamline representations of Latinos, et cetera, can be bypassed by groups that organize on social media. So yes, I'm one of those old people that still has Facebook. I'm not good on Instagram and other things. But uh, that is, uh, in my classes, when I teach Afro-Latin American history, my, com- my final projects are always um, digital projects because I'm learning from my students and I'm asking them to do research on social media, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and to trace and search. That's where they can identify the new emerging groups that are organized around Black identity and Black political issues in the U.S. Latinx communities and, and Latin America. And they do it because that's how that's how the that's how people are organizing, meeting, sharing agendas. Uh, sharing new documentaries, sharing music, uh, posting about police violence, et cetera, or about the next protest. Where do I go when I need to do that? I go to social media, actually. That's, for me, where I would send most people. And I will say, I'm sure that anybody younger than me will know how to do the research more effectively than I do, but that remains, for me, um, generally the most uh, useful resource right now. We'll we'll follow up and and grab a few of those additional links. I'm thinking of a few now, but we'll grab a few that maybe your students recommend and we'll add those to our resource pages. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure and I will look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure being part of your podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast.